left Moses in Egypt, Moses and Aaron actually, as they began that dialogue with Pharaoh and shared a message of God's intent to let the Hebrews be freed. The theme, the idea of that particular study was this. Sometimes even when we follow God's will, things don't turn out quite the way we expected. Murphy's laws came into play. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. And so as Moses and Aaron said, and when he said no, he additionally added to the labors of the Hebrews in Egypt as they built all of those structures there for Pharaoh. He said, now you're going to have to find your own straw to make the bricks. Not only that, but, but you've got to keep the same quota that we've given you, so your labors must increase to go find the straw and make the bricks. And you find Moses there saying, Lord, what's going on here? Where are you in all of this? This morning, we come to a scripture in Exodus chapter 7 that I need you to see as a, as a, a part together. It's chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 in Exodus. When this service ends, you're going to say he preached four chapters in Exodus. And that's a monumental task. Winston Churchill said on one occasion that there are two things we ought never know how they are made. One is sausage, <laughs> and the other is sermons. This morning, I'm going to sort of let you in on an insight of how this message came to be. When I study about the plagues in ancient Egypt, I dive into the scripture and I, I jot down all the kinds of insights and specifics that I think are important to the story. And I have to admit to you this morning that when I got through with all 10 of the plagues, there were several pages there, as you can imagine. And so I began to wonder how in the world I was going to fit all of this into one sermon, if indeed did it need to be into one sermon. And I think it does. This morning I'm going to put nine of the plagues in front of us, and next Sunday we're going to reserve the tenth and final plague as a standalone plague. Because as you remember, it's, it's the story of the angel, the death angel, as it passed over in Egypt. And that was the final plague that ultimately led Pharaoh to say to Moses and Aaron, get your people and get out. And so freedom finally comes to the Hebrews. That'll happen, Lord willing, next Sunday. And as a result, by the way, commercial, we will observe the Lord's Supper together next Sunday morning because it fits so well with the Scripture and an understanding of how that event prepares the way for the cross and the coming of Jesus. But back to the preparation of the sermon. I put all of this into print and I asked myself, so what? All of this information that we compile and we, we put together about the plagues, and, and, and I just sort of sat where you're sitting and I said, you know, I think... Uh, if I were listening to this sermon, I would have to say, but what does that have to do with me? 
I'm eventually going to get there, and I want to ask that you be patient with me until we arrive there. But there's another side of this that you need to think about. And it's one that we don't often think about because, well, we're just creatures of habit. And sometimes we put blinders on, and when we come to church, we... We go to the same Bible study class. We mix and mingle with the same folks. We sit in the same places in the sanctuary for the service. And you're, you're just in the habit. And I would be the same way. I'm not saying this is a fault of ours. But you'd be in the habit of just seeing the same people and, and, and you know, just shaking hands and having the same conversation. But somewhere along the way, we have to ask ourselves, what would a non-churchgoer think about this? I mean, if somebody just wandered into our service and sat down and listened to a preacher preach on the plagues of ancient Egypt, my stars. <laughs> Wouldn't they wonder, what, what, what is this all about? And by the way, I grew up as a child listening to preachers preach on the plagues. And I remember some of them, and generally speaking. And, and you know, I, I grew up under what we would call fire and brimstone kind of preachers. Well, they got loud, louder than me, if you can believe that. And, and, and boy, they would sweat. And, and you would measure the effectiveness of their sermon by the amount of the sweat on their brow. I'm just kidding. Y'all awake this morning? But if you're going to explain what happens here in Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 10 to an unbeliever, to a non-churchgoer, there is one thing that I think that we must say, and I'm going to say it now, and I'm going to say it at the end of the sermon, and that is that we must always understand that the judgment of God, which is what we're going to read about, is motivated by the love of God. You say, how is that possible? Think of it as a parent. Your child is disobedient. In discipline, you execute judgment. Now, discipline, by the way, should be redemptive. Discipline is always not just punitive, but it is the idea of I somehow want to correct this mindset and this mentality in my child, and I don't want them to make this decision again. So there is some instruction that must come along with discipline, but discipline involves judgment but why do you discipline your child because you love them and because you want them to know that there is a better way to live so first and foremost I want you to hear me say that as we walk through these plagues in their dramatic fashion now one other thing I'm going to give you up front I put it at the end of the sermon and when I look back and evaluated it I said nope I can't put it there I've got to put it at the beginning and then I'm going to come back to it at the end here's three takeaways that I'll, I'll share with you at the end of the sermon if I can remember them number one what is it that I want you to know number two how do I want you to feel as a result of what I've just told you and number three, what is it that I want you to do? So what is it I want you to know? How do I want you to feel? And what is it that I want you to do as a result of this? That, that's where we're headed, and that's what we're going to get to. 
Okay? Now, so look with me, beginning in chapter 7 of Exodus at verse 19. Here is plague number one. By the way, I, 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 you know, I, always, I just assume too much. You remember that last time we looked at this story in Exodus, I carried you back to Genesis where God said to Abraham, that's a totally different character, that's a totally different time and era, but God said to Abraham, your children, your descendants are going to live in a foreign land and they'll eventually get out of that oppressive state, but it'll only be under compulsion, remember? Well, here is where God fulfills that prophetic word of talking about the compelling evidence, I want my people set free. And he begins to do some things that were very obvious and tangible in that land. Look at what it says in verse, chapter 7, verse 19. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their streams, and over their pools, and over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did, even as the Lord had commanded. And he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died. And the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. Many of our students here this morning studied world history in seventh grade. Some of us studied about Western civilization in college. If you study the history of Egypt, you know that the ancient Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. It overflowed at certain times of the year, and as a result, it created a delta region along the river that created a very fertile soil where they could grow their crops. The Nile River, of course, was their main water source and water supply. We know that Moses himself was taken out of the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter, maybe even granddaughter, and then taken to the palace to live. So the Nile River played an important role in Egypt. And as the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River, it was the first false god of Egypt that the one true God addressed. And he told Moses and Aaron, we're going to turn it into blood. Now, I always have somebody ask the question, well, was it real blood? I mean, some translations of the Bible even say it was turned as blood. The problem I have with that is the original language says blood. It turned into blood. If you start adding to and explaining away and washing down and rationalizing everything in Scripture, if you take that same approach everywhere in the Bible, you will totally remove the miraculous and the supernatural. And you can't do it. God turned it into blood. It was blood. What's he doing is he is is totally taking away this resource and, and this natural supply line that they would have leaned on for the irrigation of crops, for water supply, for, you know, they fished, they would harvest the fish of the Nile River and they would feed their families. And he's totally removing that from them. And that is the first, I think it it affected so many people so quickly. God immediately 
addressed it, and it was turning the Nile River into blood. Now look at the next thing in chapter 8. Look at verse 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now for the interest of time, I'm not going to read everything. I'm just hitting the high spots here. I've got to mention nine plagues. So here's the second, frogs. If I were a child in church, I would say, yes, I came to church the right Sunday because I'm so enamored with that, and I think children are enamored with it. Frogs? Really? I mean, that's a reality of the Bible. Well, it is. You say they worship frogs in Egypt? Absolutely. Frogs were so plentiful and multiplied so rapidly, there was this idea that the worship of frogs would lead them as human beings to be just as reproductive and fertile and just have the mass numbers of those human beings living, they said frogs have some power in and of themselves, and so they worship them. Now, I encourage you to read the other verses that go along with these plagues. Maybe this afternoon, right before you drift off to take a nap, or maybe where you wake up this afternoon, read this, and you'll read how it says that the frogs, where? We're in the bed, in the kitchen. Every part of their life was affected with frogs, frogs, frogs. As a child, I'm saying, this is it, man. This is the best story I've ever heard, right? Yep. Well, I like the verse that says it's in the kneading bowls. I remind Angie of that every now and then. I said, you know, in 33 years of marriage, not one time have you asked me to get down the kneading bowl out of the cabinet. And I asked, do we even have one? I don't think we do. Kneading bowl, of course, is how they make the bread as they put those ingredients in there and they put them all together and mix them together as they're preparing the dough to make the bread. Can you imagine as a wife is going in to mix that up and she goes over here to get another ingredient and comes back and there's a frog leg just waving at her out of the bowl. It's prolific. It's dramatic. And it's traumatic. Look in chapter 8, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. Fundamentalists say gnats. So, hello. Gnats. One translation says fleas. Fleas. Maybe it's fleas. I don't know. Gnats. I can't stand either one of them. One time our oldest daughter, Brittany, went home with a friend and they played in a room that was out in the back of the house of, of this family and they put in outdoor carpet and they had all kind of games and tables set up. I mean, it was a really neat place for the kids to go and play, but they did not know that the, the, the carpet had become infested with fleas. And so when she came home, her whole legs were covered with flea bites, and we were really concerned about it. Took her to the doctor and had to put the ointment on them and disinfect her and, you know, and all throughout the day, and we were concerned. But, but, but this, is a, this is a real problem. Now, in the same chapter, he mentions another thing. Look down at verse 21. It says, For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. So we go from gnats or fleas, whatever it is, to flies. I don't know about you, but I can't stand the fly. There are times of the year when flies become so bad that they get in our homes. And if I see a fly land on a piece of food, I'll throw that piece of food away. 
or that portion of it. I won't eat it. I won't touch it. I don't want to have anything. They are the most despicable, dirtiest insects that I can possibly think. Flies, just can't stand them. And they had to live with them in a multitude, swarms of them. Everyday experience, trying to live and function. Can you imagine it? With flies. So we go from blood of the Nile River to frogs to gnats and flies. Look in chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and on the flocks. God is affecting every part of their lives. And of course, they viewed their animals as their wealth and believed the more herds that they had, the more wealthier they were. Look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kill and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and will become balls breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Surely they had versions of physicians in their day. People that they believed were capable of supernatural powers and they paid homage to them, much like worshiping them. And here the soil of the boils and the sores would have come up on them and, and it would again have affected their daily life. I know of a man who was very athletic. He was very strong and tall and very active and he got a sore, a small sore on the bottom of his toe. And he said, it shut me down. He said, I, could not, I couldn't go to work. I couldn't walk. I couldn't do it. Just that, that and fortunately it went away quickly, but he said, I know something of what that ball might have been like for those people who dealt with it. And it could have been very painful. Look in chapter 9, verse 18. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Some of you will remember about five, six years ago, a hailstorm came through central Mississippi. Did it make it this far north? Any of you deal with hail up here? Maybe not. I was fortunate enough to have been in the hospital. I've been hospitalized twice in my life. And on this time, I was in the hospital for five nights. And a nurse came in, it was like the next to the last day before I was to be discharged, and she was crying. She had tears come down, and she was changing out my IV. And I said, are you all right? She said, no, I'm not. I said, what's wrong? She said, did you not hear that hail? I said, no, I, I was sleeping all the way through it. And she said, uh, two days ago, I traded cars. She said, I bought a brand new Nissan Maxima, and she said, I've just gone out to see it, and it had been totally destroyed. I actually heard other people crying out in the hallway that day. And so it was kind of like wailing and crying. It was very eerie. And then I began to hear the stories of it. And I've had people say, Bill, it was of biblical proportions of hail. My vehicle was at home in the garage. I didn't have any problem with the hail. But we had two other vehicles in our family that did get hail damage. Had to have those, so it was a big problem. And so if your insurance rates went up, it was our fault <laughs> if, if you didn't deal with it. But, but hail, hail will kill individuals. Hail kills animals. Hail kills crops. Hail affects the land. I mean, hail, very serious plague. Then in chapter 10, look at verses 4 and 5. 
He says, for if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail. And they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. God is thorough in his judgment, isn't he? And he is covering every aspect of the land and the crops. Some people believe that these locusts were also like beetles. And we know that in some cultures, beetles were worshipped, not only because of the numbers in which they would come in and swarm in and eat the crops, but because of their, their size and their strength. Beetles are small, but they're very strong, have the hard shell on them, you know. So locusts, beetles. And then in chapter 10, look at verse 21. This is the ninth plague, by the way. He says, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. What in the world is going on here? Even at my ability to rapidly read through these plagues, I don't know how to dramatically take us to that point where emotionally we are affected by what God is doing here. But understand it, see it. Moses and Aaron have come to Pharaoh and said, God has a message, let my people go. Pharaoh said no. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, 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 and he's, he, he said no, 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 no. What does that mean? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I'm indebted to a couple of Old Testament scholars who have described this for me. The verb tense where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart is a verb tense in the Hebrew that is actually inexpressible in English. But basically, in layman's terms that I can understand, here's what it means. God created the capacity within Pharaoh's heart for him to allow his heart to become calloused. Calloused enough to see all of these dramatic plagues and then say, no, no. No, I will reject God's will for my life and for everybody else's lives. Do you know anybody like that? Have you ever met someone who would say, I've seen the miracles of God. I've heard the story of Jesus. I understand that he loves me and died for me on the cross. And yet I say no to him. God gives us the ability to reject him. There's a part of me that don't, doesn't like that very much. And I don't want to accept that. But I had an experience this week that really illustrates this point. I was walking out of the grocery store, and I was just being my likable self. And a guy was walking beside me, and I said to him, I said, have you ever seen a more beautiful day than today? And it really was. I mean, it, no humidity. It was gorgeous outside. Sun was shining, but it wasn't hot. It was just an enjoyable day. And he said, it is a beautiful day. And then he said, but the only reason we know it's a beautiful day is because of the bad days that we have. And I wanted to say to him, are you a Debbie Downer? I mean, I've just alerted us to the fact it's a gorgeous day, but you want to you take my mind to the days when it's raining, when it's cloudy, and the sun doesn't shine. But the truth is, he's exactly right. God gives us the ability to reject Him only because we then understand and appreciate how wonderful it is when we accept Him. I mean, God is not 
forcing himself on us. God doesn't make us robots. God doesn't program us to automatically serve him and love him and accept. He gives us the option choosing to do that. And with Pharaoh, his heart was hardened. The more God said, this is my will, Pharaoh said, this is my will. And, God, and Pharaoh said, I will choose my will over your will. And that's always a tendency of ours. What, what is it that I want you to know? What is it that I want you to see? Above all of these things that God was doing with the Egyptians, there is one truth that he was trying to get through, through, through to them. You know what it was? I'm the one true God. Let me show it to you here. I marked these verses in my Bible. Back in chapter 7, verse 17, says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 10, he said, Tomorrow, may it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. God wanted Pharaoh and all of Egypt to know that these fake gods and goddesses were nothing for them. That he alone was the true God. And he was trying to reveal himself and make himself known in that way. Folks, all the way through the Bible, that's what God was trying to do with Elijah on Mount Carmel. Those prophets of Baal and Asherah went and prayed, Oh, send down fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice. But they didn't because they couldn't because they don't exist. And Elijah stepped up and prayed one simple prayer. Do you remember what he prayed? He said, Lord, so that everybody here may know that you're the one true God, I pray you'd send fire and consume the sacrifice. And quicker than zigzag lightning, that's exactly what God did. All the way through the Bible, God's intent and desire is just to reveal himself, reveal himself, reveal himself. And that is the truth for you and me. We talk about the wilderness times when God takes us into the desert places. It's always there that he reveals himself because the world tries to hide him. The world tries to distract us from him. The world tries to take us away from seeing what God is doing. And the whole time God's saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. That's what I want you to know. But how do I want you to feel? Well, that depends on your spiritual condition this morning. Even though I'm not going to take time and go back and read each of those instances, I want you to know there are three times that Pharaoh tried to compromise with Moses. See, along these plagues, Moses would come back and say, will you let him go now? Nope. Will you let him go now? Nope. Will you let him go now? Nope. Well, somewhere along the way, Pharaoh would begin to say, you know what? I hear you want me to free them, but I tell you, why don't you just go a little ways away? Worship, come on back. I tell you what, how about you just just take the men? Just take the men. Leave the women and children and all the herds and everything here. All these compromises that Pharaoh came. but, But I want you to hear what Moses said. Here's what Moses said. Pharaoh We're not going three days into the wilderness and coming back. We're going for good. We're leaving for good. Second, we're not just taking the men. We're going to take everybody. We're not just leaving the herds and the animals. This is what he said. We're taking every hoof. Literally, that's every hoof that exists in Goshen. We are taking, because that is God's will. And you know what he was doing? 
He was saying to Pharaoh, you can't bargain with God. You can't compromise with God. God has a desire that they be freed, that they be freed fully, and they be freed forever from you. And ladies and gentlemen, that is God's will for you and me. But you know what? Satan tries to tell us, you can do God's will, and you don't have to go very far from the life you're living. Or you, you can choose to do this for yourself. I know people who think that it is the church's responsibility to help their children understand how to make good decisions. It's not their responsibility as parents. I've actually had parents say that to me. It's not mine. It's the church's job. I'll let them make any decision that they want as long as they can justify it, as long as they can give me a reason for it. Really? You see, God wants all of us or none of us. God says, I need you to commit yourself fully. To, and, and that's what Moses is trying to say to Pharaoh. Well, what I want you to feel is, if you are a Christian right now, you've come to Christ, you've trusted Him as your Savior, then repentance is needed. If there's an area of your life you're still not sure about giving over to God, and that, that can be your finances. I heard a man say to me just last week, he's a pastor, been in ministry for almost 50 years. Listen, listen to what he said. And this got my attention. He said, Bill, if we don't do a better job teaching young people about the principle of the tithe and the offering, he said, within 10 years, we're going to see churches close their doors in rapid fashion. And he makes a pretty good case. Because I'm reminding us that there is a generation, and I've seen it, I've talked to them, I've had conversations with them. There is a generation of young people who believe that church ought to be entertaining. And if they don't get something from it, they don't give to it. That there is no obligation on their part to financially sacrifice for the church at all. Maybe there's an organization over here. Maybe it's Samaritan's Purse. Who? That's where I want to write my check to, not the local church, you see. So we've got options out there. Let's just support them all. And never giving any thought to the fact we still have to turn lights on. We have to buy literature. The money that we give doesn't stay here. It goes to mission opportunities and mission points out there literally around the world. But if we don't give, the church suffers. And as generations fade and generations come along, there will be a generation of people who come to church and eventually they'll say there is no church. Interesting thought, isn't it? So with our finances, we may say, you know, maybe I need to consider if I'm doing what God wants me to do with my finances. Maybe the devil has convinced you, you can come to church, you don't have to give to it. That's the same compromise that Pharaoh was making with Moses. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's other relationships that you know are not healthy for you, but you hang on to them anyway. No compromise. For a Christian, it's I'm selling out to Jesus. I'm going to follow him. 
I'm going to serve Him totally and completely in my life. That's for Christians. If you're an unbeliever, what I want you to feel, what I pray you feel, and what I pray you feel from God and not from me is a conviction of His Holy Spirit and an understanding that only by trusting Jesus as your Savior can you be saved. Only by knowing Him personally and having a relationship with Him can you have the peace and joy and contentment and fulfillment and the knowledge and the security that heaven is going to be your eternal home. And this morning, I'm inviting you to trust Christ as your Savior. That's what I want you to know. That's what I want you to feel. And that's what I want you to do. Because all in all, there are things that take place in our lives Some things we want to blame God for. Maybe we need to pause and ask ourselves, did God cause it? Or did God allow it to happen? But in and through it all, nothing. Nothing in heaven, on earth, or under the earth can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Stand with me this morning, will you? Father, would you remind us this morning that the God who was is the God who is. And Father, in the same way that you loved not just the Hebrews in Egypt, but you loved the Egyptians as well. I pray that you would remind us that you have a love that is never ending. And that you desire for us to come to know you through Christ. And for the duration of our earthly lives for us to serve you. And share you with others around us and ultimately to the ends of the earth. I pray Father that you would use this service as only you can and As I've shared this morning, if if there's one person who needs to publicly acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, give them the courage to come forward. Say, yes, I want to follow Jesus in baptism, in church membership. I want to ask this church to help me grow in my faith. Father, for Christians who are here, may we evaluate, may we take inventory of where we are in our spiritual journey with you. Should there be Christians here who by your spirit would be led to unite with our church family because we receive members in many ways, let them come and say yes. We want to officially be a part of North Winona Baptist Church and we want to contribute of ourselves so that this church may be strengthened and blessed. Use us as you see fit, Father, through Jesus we pray.